Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Seasonal God by Pastor Sean Wood. We will continue our walk through Ecclesiastes, which is our series in climbing the mountain of meaning. And last week, for those who weren't here, we began to look at the book of Ecclesiastes and we... uh, we came to some conclusions. The first one is we really need to know what this word in the Hebrew, it's hevel, but we need to understand what this word means because your Bible will translate that word as meaningless or perhaps vanity or perhaps emptiness. And those words are absolutely correct. But the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes uses this word also in, in a fuller context where that, that life is like hevel. It's like, it's like a vapour or it's like a smoke. As much as you try to grab hold of it, there's no solidity to it. And so it is with this life. And so many people try to, try to build their lives and find all of their satisfaction and meaning in the things of this life. And the preacher says, you can't do that. I want to give you a bit, of a, a bit of a summing up. If I could sum up the entire book of Ecclesiastes, it would be in this saying, we may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. We found out last week that in this life, there are no guarantees. That's, that's what the preacher wants us to know. If you were under the sun, that's the clarification that he gives, but, but under the sun, there are no guarantees. If you're trying to find all of your guarantees in success and career and social status and money. The preacher wants to know that's vanity. But he gives us another clarification. And then he says, but under heaven. And he speaks, he will continue to speak about life connected in faith with God. Hallelujah. Our God is an awesome God. Today I want to talk about a seasonal God and as we work our way through uh, Ecclesiastes 3, most of us will know the words of Ecclesiastes 3. Most of us will know that the poem that is there is a time for everything. But have you ever noticed how God is a seasonal God? Have you ever noticed that there's seasons in your life? Have you ever noticed that it feels like sometimes you're going through a barren, cold winter? Ever felt like that? There are people in this room this morning that would absolutely put their hands up and say, that feels like me right now. But we can't have the springs in life without winter. And we can't enjoy the fruits of spring in summer unless we have the spring first. And our God is a God of seasons and everything comes back around in autumn we move back into the stripping back. But God continuously strips us back and then brings new growth and strips us back and then brings new growth. And guess what? It hurts when he strips us back. I don't know if anybody here has seen a, a, it was a documentary on Discovery Channel called The Deadliest Catch. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that. That, that is an awesome show. It follows about a handful of these captains that are fishing for crab in the Bering Sea. You watch one episode and you will sit there and go, go and find a desk job. I mean, these guys are insane. The Bering Sea, the weather on the Bering Sea can go from a milk pond to a raging storm in a matter of moments. These guys are forever watching. The, but I was amazed when I watched this because... I, I've been in boats, I've been in rough weather and I find it hard to trust the guy that's got hold of the wheel. 
You know, I'm standing there going, I know where we're going and I can see the weather and I'd rather be in control of the boat if it's all the same to you. And I watch these guys and they're on the deck of the boat and one guy's job is to throw the hook and the other guy's job is to bait the pots and the other guy's job is to sort the crab and none of them ever question the captain. None of them ever question the captain. They go about their life on the deck of the boat and they trust him fully to steer the ship where it should go. They wait for his instructions. Didymus the blind, one of the fathers of our faith, he would say in a similar manner that we're all like passengers on a cruise ship. And although we can't see the captain, although the captain is invisible, the fact that the ship is heading towards a course speaks to the fact that there's a captain at the helm. And so it is in our lives. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants to bring out something that is very beautiful truth. But as a dear friend who was passed away, he's not a friend of mine, but I respect his teaching greatly, the passed away Presbyterian brother, passed away recently, he says that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. And what that basically means is most of us will address the fact that God is the captain of the ship while we're trying to wrench the wheel from his hands. Faith, friends, looks like I will do what God has asked me to do on the deck of the boat and I'll allow him to steer the ship. Jesus would coach us in this, would he not? Did Jesus not say, do not worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's got enough concerns of its own. Jesus would point to the flowers of the field and he would say, you know what? They don't, they don't toil, they don't work, they don't get busy. But Solomon in all of his glory was never arrayed as one of these. Have a look at the sparrows, Jesus would say. They're, they're, they're that innumerable, you can't count them, but not one of them falls to the earth without my father knowing. God is absolutely in control. But most of us salute the sovereignty of God, but we believe in the sovereignty of man. Let us move on. Let us read the first verse of chapter 3. It says, For everything there is a season, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. Friends, there is a season for everything. Galatians says that when the time had fully come, that God sent his son, born not of a man, but born of the Holy Spirit. But he sent his son when the time had fully come. And what time was that? It was the most perfect time for Jesus to come because Rome had built roads and the gospel was able to spread ever more quickly because of the infrastructure of Rome. When we look at everything that happened, the timing was perfect. Oh, I'm sure the prophets longed for Jesus to come in their day, but God's timing is always perfect. And the preacher is going to now talk about time, the first one that he wants to introduce, and the other one is death. Two things that none of us have any control over. They are imposed on man, but we are given the opportunity to steward them. For everything there is a season, for everything there is a time. And then he will go on with his poem. There is, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. For everything, friends, there is a time. And time is imposed on man, but we see that God is intimately and intricately involved in time. There's been groups throughout history that have tried to unplug from time, haven't they? You know, think of, we think of the, the, the hippies and we think of 
go to Nimbin, brothers and sisters, go to Nimbin and you'll see, see what it looks like, the history of Nimbin and places like that, people that just want to plug, unplug. We've got, we've got cults and all these sorts of things that say, we're just going to unplug. But you know what? We still have 24-hour days. They still age. Time, friends, is something that you can't escape. It's not something that God is, it's not imposed on God for a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to God. But to us, we are given time. God gives us the smallest slice of eternity that we get to steward for ourselves. It's like God says, I've got the wheel and I'm in control, but I've got a task for you to do on the deck. For the small period of time, that you are here. The interesting thing about time is we quite often, you ever heard the saying, don't do today what you can put off till tomorrow? Oh, (laughs) they coined that in Australia. We coined that in Australia, didn't we? Don't do today, friends, what you can put off till tomorrow. Oh, but the psalmist would say, and wisely so, the psalmist would say, teach me to number my days. In other words, the psalmist would say, let me live my life with one eye on eternity because he knew that everything that happened here would pertain to fruit in eternity. Ravi Zacharias says beautifully that time is the brush of God as he paints his masterpiece on the heart of humanity. We'll talk more about it next week, but if you ever... Life can sometimes be like tapestries. Have you ever seen a tapestry? Have you ever seen the backside of a tapestry? Uh, Ravi Zacharias writes a fantastic book called The Grand Weaver. If you haven't read it, please read it. But basically, that's what he points out, that all of, our, all of the, the components of our lives are like these random threads. And it's like we're looking at the back of the tapestry and all we see is randomness and threads and chaos. But on the other side, God sees the other side and he is formulating a beautiful masterpiece, which is your life. And Ravi Zacharias says the time is the brush of God as he paints his masterpiece on the heart of humanity. I praise God for Ravi Zacharias, friends, to give us clarity. Let's keep reading. We go past the poem now to one of the most beautiful verses in Ecclesiastes. I love this verse. Let's get down to that if we can. We'll start at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made you, friends. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. I love that verse. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. Blaise Pascal would say that we are all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts and we all strive and push to fill that hole with anything and everything but God. But Blaise Pascal says nothing will fit that hole. Only God. And we see it. You are designed to worship. Every single person will worship. It looks differently for different people, but you will worship. You will worship your career. You will worship your relationship. You will worship that social status. You will worship what it is that's in your bank account. Or you will worship the living God that gave you all of that stuff in the first place. But Blaise Pascal says you will worship. Hallelujah. My old mate Ravi, again, there's no greater discovery than seeing God as the author of your destiny. There's no greater discovery than realising that God has a purpose and a plan for you. What did they say in Acts chapter 3? They coined him as the author of life. 
God's writing a story. There's about a hundred of them that he's writing here every Sunday. He's writing a story. The chapters look different and the seasons are different for each and every one of us. But God is penning a beautiful story before all of us. There's no greater discovery than to realise that God is the author of your destiny. God has placed eternity into man's heart. We long for the eternal. C.S. Lewis says he, he would speak that he longs, for the, he longs for the musical tune that he has never heard. He, he longs for the fragrance that he has never smelled. He longs for the colour that he has not yet seen. And all of this lies in eternity. Also, he has placed, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You ever tried to work God out? Good luck. Good luck. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. God's gift to man is this. Enjoy what he has given you to enjoy. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but enjoy what it is. I remember listening to the radio, the guy's talking on the radio recently and he's talking about the fact, he said, you know what, I've realised that over the last 12 years I've wasted a large portion of my money. And the guy says, how's that? He says, I've been going, he says, to this psychiatrist and this counsellor to help me because, you know, my, my, my job's a high pressure job and I'm quite a busy guy and I've been going to him. And he said, I, he said, I can sum up this guy's advice, 12 years of advice. He said, I can sum up in 20 seconds. And the guy said, what's that? He said, he told, tells me to go outside, sit on a bench, breathe and just feel the sun on my face and just hear the noise of the birds. Enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. What's wrong with the greatest gift of the sunrise that he gives us every morning? What more do we want? It points to his wondrous glory. John Piper tells of a time when he, he gets up in the morning and he's, he's thinking about this and he pulls the blinds back and the sun beams in his bedroom window, uh, much to his wife's disgust, he tells me tells later on. But he says, he, he opens the blinds and he says, Noel, he's done it again. He's done it again. And she says, what on earth has he done this time? <laughs> he's given everybody one more chance. It's given everybody one more chance. Enjoy what it is that God has put in your hands. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. I just want to ask a question. Anybody here spoken any stars into existence last week? Can anybody here paint anything as beautiful as the sunrise or the sunset? Can you add anything to what God has done? No. It gives you a deeper appreciation for other people as well. The psalmist says that you knit me together in the womb. What a fascinating thought that God intricately put me together. Yeah, he could have, before you say he could have done a better job. <laughs> I'm not English, so <laughs> I'm joking. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. Everything that God does should inspire wonder and awe. 
to sit back at everything that God has done. I look at the human body. Do you know the human body is an amazing machine? The human body is a fantastically amazing machine. Just, just the human eye. I don't know anybody that could sit there and explain to me how the human eye happens by accident. It's amazing. But God's put it all together. The greatest testimony to God is to have a look in the mirror. So that people will fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. We now come down to the conclusion of, of chapter 3. Now the preacher says that he gives the comparison of beasts and men and says, you know what, the same thing happens to all. You know, we all die. So he introduces this, this theme of death. We'll look more at that next week. But <clears throat> he comes down to, we'll start at verse 21. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? We don't know. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, we should rejoice in what God has given us for today. We should rejoice in the relationship that we have with God, because as the preacher says here, to see what will be after him. Does anybody know what is going to happen tomorrow? I know we have plans. I know we think we will wake up in the morning and, and, and have our Wheaties and go to work and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you really don't know what will happen tomorrow. In fact, nobody in this room is guaranteed their next heartbeat. Nobody. Nobody knows what comes after. So let us rest our assurances in God. What do we draw from the sovereignty of God? What, do, what does it mean for us? What do, I get it, but what does it look like in everyday life? It looks like letting God be God. Two unchangeable truths of this, friends. God exists and nobody in this room is him. And Ecclesiastes wants to highlight the fact that God is in heaven and you, friends, are on earth. There is a distinction between you and God. But rejoice in your toil. Let's come down to verse 4. We'll start at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppression, oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And this is, this is part of what it looks like to let God be God. We don't have all the answers. I know this may surprise you, but I don't have all the answers either. Nobody here has all of the answers. And there, our life must be a life that is lived, letting God be God. I shared this briefly with a stew this morning, but I watched a movie yesterday uh, about a guy by the name of Carlton Pearson, and most people here wouldn't know that, because I didn't really know a whole lot about him until uh, I watched the movie. But it was an interesting movie, because what happens is Carlton Pearson, is a, he was a bishop in the US, he has a church of five, 6,000 people. Uh, God mightily anointed him, and he did a fantastic work in America. Uh, he, he came through the Oral Roberts University, for those that know Oral Roberts. But he, he saw fantastic amounts of salvations. God really working through him and through his church. But then he's sitting down one night and he's watching uh, an advert about starving children. And all of a sudden, he can't reconcile all of this. All of a sudden, there's a conflict inside of him. <laughs> and I know there's conflicts inside of us. 
I know we've got elephants in the room. The preacher knows, the preacher of Ecclesiastes knows that we live with elephants in the room, but what he wants to do is he wants to pull them out. But see, what happened to Carlton Pearson was he couldn't reconcile how salvation and eternity pertains to all of this. He, he couldn't work it all out. He's not the only one, but, he couldn't, but it drove him to a conclusion where he pulled three verses out of the Bible and the next thing you know, there is no hell. God wouldn't send anybody to hell because he couldn't reconcile it in his own mind. He had dear family members that had slipped into eternity that he had longed that they would come to a knowledge of Christ. What are we learning from the Gospel of John? We learn not that they could not believe, but they would not believe. It was interesting because the movie does highlight the end game of his beliefs. For those who are wondering, they coined that universalism. Basically means that there is no hell, there is no punishment. That's not what Jesus taught. That is not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that we have a choice in this life and we, we're given this time to steward all of those things and, and we're able to choose God in this life. But even the preacher here is now going to bring the elephant out in the room. He says, we can't ignore this, but we have to let God be God. We, we don't have all the answers necessarily. But the conclusion of the matter is, I, I love the scene that comes towards the end where, you know, the church, is, a church of 6,000 has come down to about 16, I think. Uh, it's, it's completely dissipated. All the people have left and all the leaders went and started another church down the road. All those sorts of things happened. But, you know, they're looking at a building to, to, to have another start church again and, and this person's all excited and you know you can, you can have the seats here and you can have the stage here and you can have the pulpit there and then he turns around and he says, why? He says, what message do I have? What am I going to preach? You see, empty. Man's always looking for back doors but he came up empty. He said, what message do I have now? Live for God? Why would you? Because everybody goes to the same place anyway. doesn't matter what you do. I spent six and a half to seven years driving taxis of a nighttime. Friends, I have seen some of the evil that goes on under the sun. I can't tell you the depths of the human heart. I can't. I, I, I can't understand how people can do that. I can't understand how a dictatorial leader in Syria can release chemical agents on his own people. I can't understand that. I can't understand what would drive a man to lead a nation to kill six million Jews. I, I can't understand that. But you know what? I don't have to. Because God does. We need to let God be God. Let's move on. Verse 2. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive because of the injustice and everything in this world. Verse 3. But better than, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen all the evils that are done under the sun. Verse 4. Then I saw that... All toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. Or as we would say today, from trying to keep up with the Joneses. The sovereignty of God in your life, a, a surrender to the sovereignty of God can be summed up in one word, contentment. What it is to be content with what God has put in your hands, and stop coveting what the Joneses down the road have. You have what God has given you to have. In fact, that's the message of Ecclesiastes is, 
you know what, idolatry is not fleeing all the pleasures of this world, necessarily. And when I say pleasures of the world, there are things in this life that God has given us to enjoy. And Ecclesiastes, is, the preacher, is not trying to tell us to flee from all of them, no. He's trying to tell us to live a life where we see that all of those come from him. Because that, friends, means you're worshipping the one they come from, not what comes from him. In other words, we worship the giver and not the gift. We have an insatiable need in Western society to keep up with the Joneses. You know, such and such down the road gets a new car, so we have to have a new car. Such and such down the road has just renovated their kitchen, so we have to renovate our kitchen. Such and such, no pun intended, such and such down the road has just whatever. And so the list goes on. But God calls us to live in contentment. And that extends to the gifts that he has given you for ministry as well. Be content with what it is that God has gifted you with. Let's, let's come down to the close of chapter 4. <clears throat> Before we close out chapter 4, I'd like to touch on a, a point that he highlights here. Verse 9, it says, The two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who was alone when he falls. The preacher says, listen, there's no guarantees in the things of this life. You will only find your guarantees in God. That is what the preacher wants to push us towards. Stop trying to find all of your guarantees in the things of this world and look for your guarantees to rest in God alone. But because we're all subject to futility, it is better that we... <laughs> that we walk this rocky road, not on our own. Jesus knew this, and he started a thing called the church. And she is glorious. I don't care what anybody else says, the body of Christ is glorious, and he is doing a wonderful work amongst his people. But we can't leave this chapter. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And there are, there are two things that we draw from this. The first is that living life with a teachable spirit is one thing that the preacher would like to point out. That living life in twos or threes means you take on some advice. Oh, we give advice quite well, don't we? (laughs) The preacher says you need to learn to take some advice. But also, as we travel this life, and as we travel the futility, it is better when we trip and fall to have somebody there that's got our back. Amen? Amen. Okay, I want to bring us now to chapter 5 as we begin to bring this to a close. There are some wise words that we read here. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, for to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I'll ask you a question. This morning when you woke up, had you been coming or going somewhere to meet the king or the Queen, or if you'd have been going somewhere to meet the Prime Minister, would your preparation have been any different? And if so, how much more different should our preparation be when we're coming to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You see, earlier I spoke about the the young boy who had five loaves and two fish, but quite often God multiplies even the small that we bring to him. 
And we come into this place and we want, and sometimes church can be like a service station. We come in, God, top me up so I can head back out. But that's actually not what church is designed for. We're here to come together to worship God. You are coming into the presence of the one who spoke the universe into being. And we should approach that with somewhat differently than we do. And I was humbled when I read these words because I need to approach God differently as well. But it extends further than Sunday. It extends to an entire posture of life. Ravi Zacharias says that worship is a posture of life that takes as its primary purpose the understanding of what it really means to love and revere God. And what it is, now we come to the end of of this short paragraph here, which is verse 7, and it says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. Approaching God, sometimes maybe if we came here with some preparation, maybe and we prepared ourselves better, maybe, that would, maybe Sundays would look differently. Maybe Mondays would look differently, depending on how we approach God. But, but what does it mean to live in the fear of God? Does that mean where it's a fear like being afraid of the dark? No, that's not what it means here. It means a reverential respect and holding God in a high place within our lives. And it looks simply like how we treat God. Let me give you an example. Timothy Keller uh, gives an example, which I think highlights this beautifully, where he says... Imagine someone gives you a rare vase from the, from the Ming dynasty. It's well over a thousand years old. It's completely irreplaceable. It's completely, has, you can't put a value on it. It's priceless. And then somebody says, please take this vase and take it down 20 flights of stairs to the lobby, please. Every step would be cautious. Every step would be tentative. Why? Not because you're afraid that the vase might hurt you. You're afraid that you might do something to hurt the vase. That's what living in the fear of God looks like. We treat God with that kind of trepidation, that we wouldn't do anything to offend him, that we wouldn't do anything to bring reproach to his name. It's about a posture of life. It's so much more than an hour and a half on Sunday. Worship is a posture of life. As I asked the worship team if they could come back, I'd ask that we could just bow our heads for a moment and just reflect in his presence. I want to ask you the same question that I asked last week as we reflect upon what the preacher has to say. And I asked last week, where is it that we find our guarantees? Where is it that you find your guarantees. More importantly, in whom do you find your guarantees? I am keenly aware that there are people in this place today that are going through some very tough seasons and their boat is getting smacked by some severely rough weather. If you're sitting in this room this morning and there are those who are sitting here and you feel like you're in the depths of winter, I want you to know spring will come. I want you to know that winter will end and spring will come. 
Friends, we may not know everything that the future holds, but we do know the one that holds all of our futures here. Let us pray together. And if you need prayer this morning, then myself and the leadership team are available. We invite you down to the altar if you need prayer for any reason this morning. But Father, together we somberly bow our heads in your presence and we ask, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, come and move upon our hearts and our lives. Father, we surrender to you afresh today. We allow you to be God in our lives. We allow you to be the captain of our ships. We allow you to be the one who is in steering our ships. And we rest and surrender to you this morning. Father, I pray that every person in this room would find all of their guarantees in Jesus. That we would find Jesus to be the pearl for us of great price. Father, I pray that every person here, Father, would know you sustaining them in whatever season it is that they are in. And we thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.